You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The topic of the third lecture in our series is Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We saw in the last lecture that the glory of God is the ultimate goal of the spiritual life, while our sanctification and salvation are the more immediate ends, the things closer to us. The only way of attaining both ends is by belonging to Christ and by living the mystery of the Holy Trinity with ever-increasing intensity. To do this, what we need to do is to be conformed to Christ. The image of God that we are structurally, simply by virtue of our nature, by virtue of the way in which we are Creator, has admittedly been tarnished by original sin and obscured by the subsequent history of sin in which any one of us could have become involved. And it needs to be restored to its full likeness, hence the need to conform ourselves to Christ and to accept and embrace and to make use of the graces that he gives us. To say that we should do all things through and with and in Christ, as the doxology in the Mass suggests, is not just pious exaggeration. Rather, it is precisely to adopt following Christ as our own example, following him as the way to the Father, and we take it with other seriousness, in trying to do as he did, and to direct everything that we have and that we are to the glory of the Father. This is the constant and urgent goal of everything that Jesus did and that we ourselves are called to embrace it. In this third lecture, what I would like to do is first to consider the theological justification for this position, and then secondly, begin to turn our attention more directly to what it means to do this, to be through and with and in Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And then toward the end, I'd like to make just a few remarks about using Mary also as our model and about reading the scriptures. But first, the theological justification for this claim, crucial to be undertaking this study of the spiritual life as a theological course. To do this, I'd like to focus on a text of scripture, which is, I think, a great theoretical justification for taking as the center part, the very center of God's plan, Christ, as the way of our restoration, as the way of our salvation and sanctification. I'd like us to consider the prayer that is the beginning of the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, 
to recapitulate all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now in that passage from the very beginning of the letter to Ephesians, we see a number of very important points being made. In that opening sentence, for instance, we see the word bless or blessing used in any number of senses. In the first part of it, we're talking about the very praise of God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we see it used in the word gift, much in the sense of the word grace, when it says, Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. A strong sense of how deeply involved graces and blessings and divine assistance will be in all this. And then St. Paul turns us toward that more immediate goal, after the ultimate goal of giving God glory, he turns us back to how we are to do it. He says, so that we should become holy and blameless before him. It is that strong sense that we need to be purified. We need to be made like God again, given that there has been a tremendous lapse. He speaks of it in a very arresting image when he talks about us as the adopted children of God. It says, he destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. For what we remember doctrinally is that God has only one naturally begotten Son, namely the one who is eternally begotten, the Word, the Son. The rest of us become God's adopted children precisely by baptism, by being made the brothers and sisters of Jesus and being made the children of God. As such, this is something extremely crucial and it occurs only through Christ hence the need for placing Christ at the very center of our spiritual life. St. Paul focuses our attention on the fact that the riches of Christ are many and are available to us. In fact, he speaks of them being lavished upon us. And he speaks of them as not only the various kinds of divine assistance which make it possible for us and give us the strength to do the particular things we need to do in times of difficulty or trouble, but also speaks of it in terms of knowledge when he says, for he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will. I don't know that this means that we find the mysteries of the will of God anything less than inscrutable sometimes, knowing why this or why that. And yet what we do know in perfect compass is that God has willed to save us, that he wills to save us and yet wants us to cooperate and will not save us without our cooperation by which we freely accept and embrace the graces that he gives. And then in that crucial line near the middle, let me repeat it again, we hear about the specific role of Christ in this divine plan for salvation. It says, which he set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to recapitulate all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This doctrine of recapitulation we'll examine more in lecture four, but in short it means that Christ made all things new, that he as head underwent in his own lifetime, all that the people of God from Adam until his own coming had gone through, but that he perfected what was imperfect, 
that he sanctified what was sinful and that he completes and makes holy what it is that remains incomplete and tarnished in us. For us, it is a matter of living the divine life in faith in Christ and then specifically those who hope in Christ. Finally, to enjoy what is destined for our salvation. All this, he says, for the praise of God's glory. He takes this and gives us some of the hope that we as Christians need to have, a hope that is guaranteed for our inheritance until we come to acquire possession of it in heaven. What I think that this passage from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is then suggesting is that it is God's will that we be united ever more closely with Christ and that this has to be the central part of our understanding of the spiritual life, that we can get nowhere and make no progress without him. In short, it is a matter of becoming transformed in Christ. And this too, like some of the earlier synonyms that I was mentioning for the doctrine of the spiritual life, is sometimes the best translation. I think of particularly Dietrich von Hildebrandt's fine work of transformation in Christ, because it emphasizes the way in which we must be changed according to his pattern, so that we will again live in the likeness of the image in whom we are made. Admittedly, Christ's actions took place at a certain point in history. That is, his actions of redemption and salvation occurred upon this earth. And yet those actions retain their salvific effect even now. Here we are now into the third millennium, and yet these actions of his have an efficacy for all eternity. Why? Because he ascended into glory, sits at the right hand of the Father, as it says in the Creed, and from that position at the right hand of the Father, he intercedes with us. It is a part of the Creed worthwhile giving special time for meditation upon for the sake of the spiritual life, precisely because it talks about the way in which he now works for us, interceding for us with the Father, sitting there at his right hand. Now when we try to consider the various ways in which a Christian-centered spirituality, one that is focused on the mystery of Christ, should take place, there have been many proposals that have been introduced over the course of history. No doubt, as one looks back at the history of Christian spirituality, there have been devotions that in one way or another eclipsed Christ, or alternately, devotions that exaggerated one aspect of the mystery of Christ, perhaps his humanity, at the expense of another, his divinity, or the reverse. But these are all aberrations, that rather what one must focus upon is Christ in his fullness, Christ as truly divine and Christ as truly human. A genuine spiritual theology will always recognize the central role of Christ as both God and man in the divine plan for our sanctification and salvation. On this subject, I would especially refer you to those passages in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that deal especially with the nature of Christ, say paragraphs number 425 and following, where one has a strong sense of the need to deal with and try to understand the hypostatic union that is involved in Christ, that he is truly of divine nature, but he is also truly taken on a human nature, for it is in this fullness that we will understand what we need to understand and what has been revealed to us for the sake of our salvation. Let's turn then to the particular phrasing that is given to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, namely, Christ as the way and the truth and the life. For by meditating on each of these three points, we learn extremely important things 
dealing with the way in which Christ should be the center of spirituality. First he says, I am the way. And by focusing on the way, he definitely means the way and not just a way, not one way among others. Rather, he is the way and therefore the path, the route, the strategy, the approach that we pilgrims must take and there's nothing automatic about our growth. No one of us can ever go to the Father except through Christ, but what Christ has done in our belief is restore the way by which we can come to God. It is a way that was destroyed for us by Adam's sin and by the effects that have followed from that. That doctrine of original sin always strikes me as one that's sort of been for too long now in the theological repair shop. It needs to be brought out front and center for the sake of understanding how it is that we are saved and how the spiritual life must be achieved, how it is that it must be pursued. Our every effort should be to live the life that Christ gave us. We are called to become, through the grace, what Christ is by nature, namely children of God, and to take it very, very seriously, not just as something that is a kind of extrinsic denomination or just a label, but rather something that is at the core of our being and directs all the ways in which we think and act and love. To quote from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One also sees this developed very nicely in the Catechism of the Catholic Church when it's dealing with the role of the Church. For even if God has provided other means by which individuals will by His mercy be saved, the Church has her mission and continues to have her mission until the end of history of continuing to preach the name of Christ and to give the opportunity for the fullness of sacramental participation by baptizing all people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as Christ directed his apostles immediately before his ascension back to the hand of his Father in heaven. We turn to the second part of the phrase, I am the truth. And again, it is not just that he is a truth, one among others, but rather that he is the truth. Here in very recent church history, we find some extremely important documents about the crisis of truth that affects our modern world. But in documents like Veritatis Splendor, the splendor of the truth on fundamental moral theology, or in the relatively recent papal encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, the Pope gives long and extensive consideration to the crisis of truth and to the doubt about the possibilities of attaining truth that seems to have afflicted academe. What Christ gives us is great confidence, namely that he is the divine truth in person. He is our master and our teacher, and all the way from the Sermon on the Mount to the very last words of his from the cross, all of his teaching was directed toward revealing his Father to us and revealing to us the grace and the charity that needs to be in us by his gift. He is the incarnate word and wisdom of God, and thus he embodies a divine wisdom. He is also rightly considered by us the model and the exemplar of the perfection of Christian life and the perfect ideal we ought to emulate. There I think we see the two important parts in any Christian doctrine of salvation, namely that some of it comes from the actions that we must do, using Christ as our model and seeing Christ as the perfect one, the idea whom we must imitate, but secondly also seeing him as the way, 
the sacramental way, the one in whom we must participate for this grace of life to be given to us and the likeness to be restored. That point is also emphasized in the third part of our trilogy. I am the life. Anytime we talk about the divine life and when we find words of Christ that speak of this, we know that we are speaking about his divine life and that what grace is, is a sharing in the divine life. We'll have occasion in Lecture 5 to consider this at somewhat greater detail, but here, in this part of our course, we simply consider Christ is the life. He is the divine life, now come in human form and living a human life, so as to share it with us. I think of a passage such as the first letter of St. John, chapter 5. God gave us eternal life, and this life is his Son. Whoever possesses the Son possesses life. Whoever does not possess the Son of God does not possess life. This speaks to us about all the life that we receive in the sacraments from the time we are baptized, and then especially the kind of life that we receive in us each time we take Holy Communion. We'll have occasion later on in the course to deal specifically with the sacraments as part of the theology of the spiritual life. Here at the beginning, and in a somewhat more theoretical order, what we remember is that it is only by the merits of the redemptive sacrifice of Christ's own passion and death that we can possess this life, this grace that is divine life. Christ died for us, and so his merits are at our disposal. We ought to accept them, but we are free to reject them. Christ is the mediator, the source, and the dispenser of all graces, and we find much important teaching I refer you to by way of additional reading in the very recent document, Dominus Jesus, which so much focuses upon the mediatorship of Christ and the crucial role that the church has in this divine plan for our salvation. We might also consider here the first letter of St. Paul to Timothy. God is one, he tells us in chapter 2. One also is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. As head of the mystical body, Christ communicates his life to his members. We might see the first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, especially verses 22 and 23. One sees Paul talking so frequently about the crucial role of Christ in our salvation. As the firstborn of many brothers, as he says in Romans, as possessing grace in its fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, something that the Gospel of St. John brings out, as well as Paul in his letter to the Colossians. How does Christ do this? He does it through the faith that he gives us in him, constantly vivified by charity. And especially he does this through the sacraments that we'll be studying a little later. For it is our belief that Christ initiated seven sacraments, all as sensible signs that communicate grace to those who receive them worthily. We'll need to consider that topic in greater detail. But now, before this lecture ends, let me turn for just a moment to the great importance that Catholics place upon Mary as a model for us in how to live this life. Mary is the mother of Christ in the flesh, and therefore the mother of God, because the one who came to her in her womb was already very God from very God. She is given to us by Jesus on the cross as our mother when he speaks those words to St. John. Hence, there is great importance in Catholic spirituality for an appropriate place for Mary, for a Marian spirituality. 
This is a theme which Pope John Paul II has frequently emphasized, namely that she is a model for us and one whom we may imitate and one on whom we may call, asking her intercession for us. She is, after all, in our belief, immaculately conceived. She has been spared any of the defects of original sin, and so she shows us, in the course of her own sinless life, how it is that we ought to respond to divine grace, and how it is that we can, because those graces will be given to us that we may imitate Christ and His Blessed Mother in living the life that God intends. Part of our understanding of Mary is that she was specially selected by God to be the mother of His Son through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. We understand her as we follow the course of her own journey, especially related in the Gospel of Luke, to be the outstanding model of what it is to be freely responsive to the grace that God gives, that she is someone who was given the invitation to very much undertake a special vocation and then to live her life in complete purity. And she does this. We see her in the various moments that are recorded in the Gospels, and especially when we pray something like the first part of the Hail Mary, we recount these mysteries. She is also, however, our spiritual mother, and this emphasized in the second part of the prayer of the Hail Mary, she is a powerful intercessor for us, and hence we call upon her to ask her when we are not ourselves praying and are involved in some other task to pray for us, for she serves as a mediator of grace for us and for the church. Ultimately, the reason why we pray to her comes from our genuine need. All Christians are called to perfection and to real sanctity. To reach perfection, it is necessary to practice and to perfect the virtues. And yet, we can do nothing without the help of God's grace. Hence, what we do is we ask for her intercession simply to obtain this grace for us, because it is useful to invoke one who was, as the Gospel tells us, full of grace, and one who looks upon us as her spiritual children. Now, there are various theological questions that are sometimes raised on this topic. In the strict sense of the word, only Christ can merit grace for us. For this reason, we do not speak about Mary as meriting grace for us in the way that Christ did. Some theologians will speak about her as having congruent merit. But what this means is that her merit rests completely upon the merit of her son, Jesus, who made it possible that her life and works and prayers could do anything for herself or for others. What we do is something of the same, and yet do not have the same gifts with which she starts. But we ourselves strive to undertake what response to grace is freely possible to us, knowing that everything is possible with God, and it is Him in whom we trust. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.